Hello and welcome back to the DPT School Study Guide. Today's topic of conversation, today's agenda at hand is physical therapy exam. We are going to be going over the third exam, which um, encompasses four different topics, neuro, imaging, cardiopulmonary, and GIGU. Most of the tests will be going over neuro and cardiopulm, but we're going to go over everything. And if you want to follow along, I'm using Mike's study guide. Shout out to Mike. Whoop, whoop. Um, Mike's study guide for PT exam. Um, test number three, study guide. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and get right into it. So starting off with neurologic exam, um, the cardinal signs of neuro, the cardinal signs and symptoms of um, a patient who has neuro involvement include confusion, depression, weakness, changes in memory, altered sensation, change in muscle tone, irritability, blurred vision, balance and coordination problems. Now, the goals for patients who have neurologic involvement include uh, an understanding where the pathologic process takes place, whether it's central, such as a spinal cord injury, or if it is peripheral, where there is weakness in both lower extremities, but not the upper extremities. Another goal of ours is to identify when did the disease process start, learn the course of the disease, how fast was it, was it gradual, such as a brain tumor, or was it rapid and acute, such as um, a CVA. The most common initial symptoms of someone with neurologic involvement include headache, dizziness, blackouts. So an important step to identify these symptoms or pathologies is to also understand the region of um, their mental status involvement. So for example, going over the frontal lobe, the frontal lobe deals with attention, executive function, motivation, and behavior. There are different tests for the frontal lobe, such as working memory, uh, such as the uh, digit span and spelling backwards. Uh, another test we can do for the frontal lobe is a judgment test, a fund of knowledge test, task organization test, um, such as naming the list in order. Uh, moving on to the temporal lobe, the temporal lobe functions to process emotion, memory, and language. Some tests for the temporal lobe include declarative memory, could check uh, for receptive aphasia, which is also known as Wernicke's aphasia or fluent aphasia, which is a posterior dominant temporal lobe, and also expressive aphasia testing, also known as Broca's aphasia or non-fluent aphasia. Moving on to the parietal lobe, the parietal lobe deals with perception and interpretation of sensory information. Non-dominant is visuospatial and dominant is apraxia. And there are different tests for the parietal lobe to see if um, patients can identify objects. That test is known as agnosias. Um, and testing for apraxias, such as ideomotor apraxia, where a patient cannot perform a movement on command. 
versus ideational apraxia, where a patient is unable to plan movements related to interaction with objects. And lastly, we have the occipital lobe, which deals with visual information. Some tests that we can conduct um, include the inferior lobe test, where we're checking for colors, shapes, and faces, and see if the patient can identify each. And uh, superior lobe testing, which detects movement. So some traps to avoid for patients with neurological involvement is uh, the time of day, stress, fatigue, and pain. Um, each can all have a large negative effect on tests. Social and educational background must be acknowledged prior to testing. For mental status exams, we want to check for the effect, the orientation, their memory, concentration, slash calculation, and their language. So for mental status exams, the effect, we want to see if the patient is withdrawn, depressed, or indifferent. With orientation, it, otherwise known as A&O, um, the person, place, and time, oftentimes with patients, the time is the first to go as far as what can, they can identify. And the person, who they are, is the last to go. As for memory status exams, we can test immediate recall, such as, you know, like repeat after me. Recent recall, which is um, remembering and repeating when prompted. So giving a patient a cue and then periodically asking them to repeat it. And concentration and calculation. Um, count, counting down from 100 by 7s should be able to around, get to around 65. And um, another subsection of concentration and calculation is three-step commands. And lastly, language, fluent versus non-fluent. Now, moving on to cranial nerve testing. Starting off with olfactory slash sensory, or rather sensory information of the olfactory nerve, which is cranial nerve one, we're identifying smell. So have the patient identify familiar odors, such as coffee, vanilla, vinegar, etc. Moving on to cranial nerve two, which is um, optic, we are testing the sensory component of the optic nerve, cranial nerve two, which is sight and vision. So we will be testing visual fields with cranial nerve two. It's important to acknowledge that you are not testing eye movement, but rather, like we said, we are testing sight and vision. So in our visual field test, we will be, you can uh, test the peripherals. So how long can you see my finger without moving your eyes slash head? You can have the patient do an eye chart, which is testing static acuity. So now moving on to cranial nerve three, the motor component of oculomotor. And with this cranial nerve test, we will be testing the reaction to light of the patient, so such as dilation and constriction. We would be testing the superior, inferior, and medial gaze and also to see if there's any drooping eyelids of the patient. Moving on to cranial nerve four, uh, the trochlear nerve, and the uh, motor component of the trochlear nerve, um, which helps to turn the eye down and in torsion of the eye. 
Next, we have cranial nerve 5. So we would be testing the motor and sensory component of the trigeminal nerve. Trigeminal nerve is often identified as a true pain. We would be testing sensation to the face, V1, V2, and V3. Um, corneal sensation would be tested with a cotton swab. Anterior tongue sensation. And also uh, jaw opening and side-to-side -side muscle strength. With a unilateral deficit, the jaw will open to the side of the lesion. Moving on to cranial nerve number six, which is the abducens. We would be testing the motor component of the abducens nerve. So we would have the patient abduct the eye or turn their eye out, and that's the test. Moving on to cranial nerve seven. We would be testing the motor and sensory components of the facial nerve. So it controls the symmetry of facial movement, such as smiling, whistling, closing eyes, wrinkling forehead. Um, a few key red flags to take away that in an upper motor neuron lesion, such as a CVA, a patient can wrinkle their forehead. However, their lower face is paralyzed, so likely to be drooling or um, lack of coordination and control of the lower face. In a lower motor neuron lesion, such as Bell's palsy, the patient cannot wrinkle their forehead and the lower face is paralyzed. Moving on to cranial nerve number eight, we would be testing the sensory component of the vestibulocochlear nerve. So the auditory component auditory component of the vestibular cochlear nerve um, would be hearing. So we would have the patient uh, test their hearing by whispering into their ear and monitoring the patient's response or by using a tuning fork or listening to familiar sounds and having them identify it. As far as the vestibular component of cranial nerve 8, the vestibular cochlear nerve, um, we would be testing for vertigo nystigmus, and general balance. Next, we have cranial nerve number nine, the glossopharyngeal. We'll be testing the motor and sensory components of the glossopharyngeal, so such as the gag reflex and the ability to swallow. Next, we have cranial nerve 10, the motor and sensory components of the vagus nerve. We would be testing the gag reflex, symmetry of the vocal palate, the test, we would have the patient say, ah, and um, check their uh, ability to swallow. Pause. Moving on to cranial nerve number 11, the motor component of the spinal accessory nerve. We would be testing the traps and the sternocleidomastoid, and the test would be resisted shoulder elevation. Next, we have cranial nerve number 12, the hypoglossal nerve. And we would be testing the motor component of the hypoglossal nerve. We would have the patient protrude their tongue. And there are two tests. The tongue, first we're observing to see if the tongue will deviate towards one side or another. Tongue will deviate towards the side of a lesion. And then have them say, la, la, la. It's also important to note that cranial nerve 9, 10, and 12 are primarily affected with lower motor neuron lesions, such as ALS. Moving on to coordination testing. Um, coordination testing is primarily testing 
the cerebellum. And you can think of cerebellum, bell, balance. That's kind of how I remember it. So coordination, CC, cerebellum, bell, balance. Just my little trick. So with this, we would be testing motor learning, uh, timing of motor activity, and looking for smooth flowing goal-directed activity. If there's any sort of dysfunction, it's known as an ataxia, which is a decomposition of movement, um, or a dysmetria, which is an under or overshoot of movement. So uh, coordination exams are as follows. Um, rapid alternating movements, known as dysdiadocokinesia, finger to nose or heel to shin, dysmetria test, rebound reflexes, speech, tandem gait, walking, stationary posture. Um, the vestibular system can also lead to coordinate dysfunction. Uh, the key differential diagnosis here is vertigo. Vertigo is the differential diagnosis between cerebellar and vestibular coordination dysfunction. Moving on to sensation testing. It is important to note that sensory impairments affect motor output. So we always test sensation testing prior to motor examination. I'm going to say that two more times because it's very important. Always test sensation prior to motor examination. Always test sensation prior to motor examination. So motor learning is highly dependent on sensory information and feedback. Testing will assist in providing the source of motor dysfunction. Anesthetic limbs are a serious risk factor for injury. And some keys for testing sensation include clear instructions and proper explanation. Instruct the patient not to guess. Do not give too much input, such as, you know, gripping their hand too tightly. Um, perform a trial run, often in a region where there is no impairment. And then make sure to occlude the patient's vision, have them close their eyes. So superficial testing is done first. Superficial testing is responsible for superficial sensation, duh, and receives information from the external environment. Superficial testing is responsible for, um, or rather superficial sensation, is responsible for pain, temperature, light touch, and pressure. Pain testing, we would have a sharp object that will not pierce skin. And we would ask the patient to verbalize when they feel the stimuli, you know, such as a pin or uh, a nail. What are those things called? Not nails, uh, paper clips. And, um, and then test the intact side first. Temperature is also very important for patient safety. Um, so for temperature tests, you would have two test tubes with different color liquid. The temperature of a cold tube should be approximately 41 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And a hot tube should be anywhere between 104 and 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Ask the patient to then identify whether they feel hot or cold. Next test we have is light touch. So using a cotton swab to the area that you're testing with the eyes closed, ask the patient to indicate whether they feel when they are being touched or if they are being touched. And last, we have pressure testing for superficial testing. 
The physical therapist presses down until there is an indent in the skin. Patient indicates when they feel they are being touched. So like we said, superficial testing is done first. Deep sensation testing is done second. So deep sensation is responsible um, for uh, stimuli from muscles, tendons, ligaments, and fascia. It is responsible for position sense, awareness of joints at rest slash movement, and vibration sense. So we can do kinesthesia tests, which is awareness of movement. Kinesthesia tests are done passively through the range of motion back and forth. And then the patient with their eyes closed will then mimic the position you place them in. You will be testing slash manipulating the involved side. So you test slash manipulate the involved side, and then you have the patient replicated on their uninvolved side. So the next test that we have is a proprioception test, which will test joint position awareness. You will grip the uh, body part or, um, or rather the involved body part on the medial and lateral sides and passively move through joint positions. So you're then going to ask the patient which position the joint is in. So you have to do a minimum of five reps with proprioception testing because that helps account for any sort of guessing. Next, we have vibration testing where you can take a tuning, tuning fork at 128 hertz placed on a bony prominence and then ask the patient if it is vibrating or not and when they no longer feel the vibration. So next we have combined cortical testing, and this is done last. It is a combination of superficial and deep. So starting with stereo, stereognosis, where you would hand the patient a familiar object, and you will have them identify the object in their hand with their eyes closed. So for example, a key or a paperclip or something that's familiar for them to be able to identify. The next test is a graphesthesia test where, once again, where the patient has their eyes closed, you would write a letter slash number on the dorsum of their hand with a pencil eraser. Um, but first, you would show them the test with their eyes open and then show them on their uninvolved side and then on their involved side, do the test with their eyes closed. The last test is a two-point discrimination test where you move two points closer and closer and ask at which point they only feel one point using a paperclip and document the difference. Next, moving on to motor exam, where we are comparing uh, side to side and proximal to distal. So voluntary movement, isolated versus synergistic. We're looking for the quality of the movement, the speed, the amplitude, smooth versus rough movement, bilateral movements, and main players, whether it's direct corticospinal or a lower motor neuron. Um, deep tendon reflex test. It is a zero to five plus scale. We would be testing the biceps brachioradialis, triceps, patella, and Achilles. And the grading chart is as follows. A zero is no response. A one plus is sluggish or diminished. A 2-plus is active or the expected response. A 3-plus is more brisk than expected, slightly hyperactive, 
A4 plus is a brisk, hyperactive with intermittent or transient clonus, and 5 plus is sustained clonus. A positive findings for the deep tendon reflex test is if it's asymmetric, a bilateral decrease or increase, or decreased upper extremity and increased lower extremity. Moving on to testing for tone. So there is no scale for decreased tone, but the Ashworth scale tests for hypertonicity and the extent of it. So to be hypertonic, um, there is a difference between rigidity and spasticity. So rigidity would be like cod, cogwheel and lead pipe where spasticity is velocity dependent. So the modified Ashworth scale is as follows. A zero um, is normal tone. A one is a slight increase in tone, catch slash release or minimal resistance at the end range of motion. A one plus is slight increase in tone, catch followed by minimal resistance for more than half the range of motion. A two is more marked increase in tone through majority range of motion. Still easily moved, though, and a three is a considerable increase in tone. Passive range of motion is difficult. So different signs, for example, um, Babinski would be an upper motor neuron lesion, and atrophy would be a sign of lower motor neuron lesions. Um, arm drift, supination, external rotation of the arm, and will drift on the right to left on the side of the lesion when looking for involuntary motor such as tremor um, there are different types such as intention tremor which is primarily a an involvement of the cerebellum and a resting tremor is primarily an involvement of the basal ganglia so now moving on to different gait patterns um, starting with hemiplegic gait hemiplegic gait is unilateral weakness, spasticity, upper extremity flexion and lower extremity extension, and circumduction is the key red flag here. Next, we have diplegic gait, where the legs are more involved than the arms. There is spasticity in the adductors, adductors. Hips and knees are flexed and adducted. Um, ankles are extended and internally rotated. Moving on to neuropathic gait. It is a peripheral nervous system disease. Distal lower extremity is the most affected. Neuropathic, the red flag and key takeaway from neuropathic gait patterns is that it involves a high steppage gait with a possible foot slap. Next we have myopathic gait patterns where the proximal pelvic girdle muscles are the most affected, and this is a waddle-type gait. Next, we have Parkinsonian gait patterns, which is in, mainly characterized by rigidity and hypokinesia from basal ganglia disease. There is a stooped forward posture with this type of gait pattern, a freezing and akinesia, and turning and block. So patients with a Parkinsonian gait uh, pattern have 
a significant difficulty turning. That is the probably the most, or rather, uh, biggest red flag. Next is a coriform gait pattern, which is mainly associated with Huntington's disease. This type of gait pattern is a regular jerky and involuntary movement. It's almost like they're dancing. And last, we have an ataxic gait pattern. The biggest red flag or takeaway here is that it is a wide-based gait, truncal instability. It is also known as the drunken sailor gait. And it is a cerebellar lesion. So now that we learned about the gait patterns, let's talk about balance testing. So almost all neurologic issues will lead to balance detriments. So complete balance assessment on a patient with neurologic disease slash disorder, a history of falls, a complaint of dizziness or vertigo. Basically, everyone can benefit from a balance assessment. So what is balance? Balance is the ability to receive afferent input and organize it in an appropriate manner to maintain upright posture and a center of gravity over the base of support. It requires adequate muscle strength. So there are different balancing strategies. There is automatic postural responses, which are not under volitional control. There is um, ankle strategy, which is distal to proximal. The sway is small and near the midline. Then uh, there's hip strategy, where um, head and hips move in opposite directions. The sway is large, fast, and nearing a um, nearing a loss of support. And then there is steppage strategy, where the lower extremity attempts to reestablish a new base of support with active limb by taking a step when the center of gravity exceeds the base of support. So let's talk about some standing tests. These standing tests are done with the arms crossed and must hold for 20 to 30 seconds. Um, a positive test if, is if the patient is unable to maintain posture, if they fall, or if they have excessive sway. So if they are um, swaying greater than 8 degrees. So a Romberg test is when you would have patient with their, you test a patient with their feet together. Um, a sharpened Romberg or a tandem Romberg is when you would have the patient's feet in a tandem stance. Um, another test is a single leg stance. And the last test is known as a foam and dome test or a MCT-SIB. And this is used to test the uh, patient's ability. Well, it's, it is for the physical therapist to be able to isolate and test individual inputs of that patient. So now that we've completed the neurological, uh, the neurologic exam portion of PTE, let's move on to the cardiopulmonary portion. So... Starting off with cardiopulmonary, the uh, first thing is to have an adequate chart review. Um, reviewing the chart prior to treatment is very important with cardiovascular patients. It should include the disease, the date of admission, the symptoms, admission, and since admission, 
uh, the medical problems of the patient, any medications that the patient's on, and the risk factors for the patient. Um, should uh, recreate the hospital stay and the physical therapy orders and cardiac limitations. So next is a patient interview. So patient's understanding of the disease is first and foremost, the patient must have a basic understanding of what their pathology is. A early assessment uh, as part of this patient understanding, a, it provides a baseline for beginning an educational program. Next, we have a patient description of symptoms, which defines similar term, de- defines in similar terminology, and everyone will describe symptoms differently. It's basically what it means to them and what they're currently experiencing. Next is family as part of the patient interview. If available, secure uh, participation in rehab process. Next is vocation, physical responsibilities and stressors, as well as setting goals. Next, as part of the patient interview, is psychological. So appropriate ways to approach and suggestions for modifications. Next is risk factors, any sort of family history of cardiovascular disease or smoking, social eating, and drinking, etc. Next is leisure activities. Individual program planning using activities that they enjoy will improve patient compliance and help achieve increased function and performance. So patient goals. When the program and patient goals are not synchronized, there will be less compliance. So we want to restore optimal function. So the program and the goals should ideally be synchronized. We just passed the 30-minute mark. If you'd maybe like to pause and take a break, get a glass of water, go for it. I'll be back. Oh, wow. You're back pretty quick. Probably just want to get this over with, huh? Me too. Next is our physical exam. During our physical exam, we will observe and inspect. Analysis of the musculoskeletal and neuromuscular systems. We will be looking at posture, gait, muscle length, tone, and skin color. Uh, decreased cerebral perfusion can show neurological signs. Um, we, the chest wall, the shape and symmetry, normal medial to lateral um, shape of the chest wall would be greater than anterior to posterior. However, in a pathologic patient or a patient with some sort of underlying pathology, such as COPD, um, the anterior to posterior shape and symmetry of their chest wall would be greater than medial and lateral. We'll be inspecting the skin, the nails, and the lips if there's any cyanosis or pallor. Um, next, let's go over the thoracic landmarks that will help our cardiovascular exam. Um, the midsternal line is vertically down the midsternum. The right slash left midclavicular line which is parallel to the midsternal at the midclavicular, the right and left anterior axillary, which is parallel to the midsternal and begins at the anterior axillary fold, the right and left midaxillary, which is parallel to the midsternal and begins at the midaxilla. So next is right and left posterior axillary, which is parallel to the midsternal 
and begins at posterior axillary folds. Next is the vertebral line. Vertically down, the spinous process. Right and left. Next is right and left scapular line, parallel to the vertebral, through the inferior angle of the scapula when the patient is standing. Palpation is next. Um, thor uh, the thorax and the chest wall. So for the trachea, the suprasternal notch, the clavicles, the manubrium, the angle of Lewis, the sternum, the ribs, the intercostal space, the xiphoid process, and the um, thoracic spinous processes are all bony landmarks. Um, next are pulses. Uh, most common are the carotid, the brachial, the radial, femoral, popliteal, posterior tib, and dorsalis pedis. So next we have uh, auscultation. So with auscultation, the stethoscope, the tubing, let's go over the specs. The tubing is thick and 12 inches long. Pause. Uh, the diaphragm is 1.5 inches in the diameter. Pause. And uh, headphones go towards the eye. The setting ideally for auscultation should be quiet. The technique should avoid lifting the stethoscope and never overclose or breast tissue. And there are five areas where we typically auscultate. The aortic um, point is at the second intercostal space at the right sternal border. It is the only one on the right side, so that's pretty easy. Next is the pulmonic point, which is at the second intercostal space at the left sternal border. So these are parallel to one another. Next is the second pulmonic, which I believe is also known as herbs point, which is the third intercostal space at the left sternal border. And then next we have the tricuspid point, which is the fourth intercostal space at the left sternal border. And lastly, we have the mitral point, which is also known as the apex, at the fifth intercostal space at the left midclavicular line. Going over the heart sounds, S1 is lub and S2 is dub. And S1, lub, is the closure of the mitral and tricuspid valves, and it hallmarks the beginning of systole. It is best heard at the apex, aka the mitral point at the fifth intercostal space, the left midclavicular line. Um, S1, lub, has a lower pitch and longer duration. S2, dub, is the closure of the aortic and pulmonary valves and hallmarks the end of systole. S2, dub, is best heard at the aortic and pulmonic areas. It is it has a higher pitch and a shorter duration. Um, so let's move on to the capillary refill test. Capillary refill test is used to determine the time it takes the capillary bed to fill after it is occluded by pressure. The technique is to blanch the nail bed, release the pressure, and observe the time it takes to refill. The interpretation, if it is less than two seconds to refill, it is intact. If it is compromised, it will take greater than two seconds. 
Typically it's three, but in the notes, I guess it says two. The limitations of the capillary refill test is that it is not very specific. Small changes in room temperature may change the results, and smoking just prior will change the results as well. Moving on to edema. Um, screen for change in orthostatic pressure and venous insufficiency. Deep vein thrombosis or valve incompetence. The technique is to observe for any unusual contours or lack of contours. Press the index finger over the bony prominence for several seconds. Measure the severity of the indent by how deep and how long it will take to go away. So the interpretation is as follows. We have a four-point scale. A one-plus means there is a slight pinning of edema, no visible distortion, and pit disappears rapidly. A two-plus pits deeper than a one-plus, and there is no readily detected distortion and disappears within 10 to 15 seconds. A 3-plus is a noticeably deep pit and lasts longer than a minute. Dependent extremity looks full and swollen. And a 4-plus, the pit is very deep and lasts up to 2 to 5 minutes to disappear, and the extremity is grossly distorted. Next is blood pressure. Uh, blood pressure is a peripheral measurement of cardiovascular function. The limitations of blood pressure is uh, the number one limitation is the skill of the examiner. So don't fuck up. So hypertension. So persistent hypertension is a persistent elevation of the systolic blood pressure for greater than 140 and diastolic blood pressure greater than 90 on two separate occasions that are at least two weeks apart. Mild hypertension is a diastolic blood pressure of 90 to 104. Moderate hypertension is diastolic blood pressure of 105 to 114. And severe hypertension is a diastolic blood pressure of 115 plus. Blood pressure measurement is the first assessment of a patient's response to exercise. Moving on to pulmonary uh, exam, similar to cardiovascular, uh, the chart review. So we want to go over the past medical history, any thoracic trauma or surgery, the oxygen administration of ventilator, chronic pulmonary disease, and disease testing. Going over family history, tuberculosis, um, cystic fibrosis and emphysema, any allergies, any malignancies, personal and social history, uh, such as employment and home, smoking, alcohol and drug use, or history of present illness. So, for example, cough, the onset, if it's sudden, gradual, the duration, the nature, whether it's dry, moist, or wet, hacking, or hoarse, whether it's productive versus non-productive, meaning if they're coughing up shit or if they're not coughing up shit. Any sputum production, the duration, the frequency, with activity or during certain time of the day. Sputum characteristics, the color and consistency, whether it's thin or slippery. Uh, thick and slippery sputum will affect gas exchange. Ugh, gross. Um, odor, suggestive of infection. The pattern of the cough, um, whether it's occasional or regular, the time of day, the weather or activity, the uh, severity of it, whether it causes fatigue or um, disrupt sleep, any chest pain, 
associated symptoms, uh, shortness of breath, pain and tightness, fever, stuffy nose, noisy respiration, efforts to treat, prescription or not, no prescription, was it su successful. Moving on to shortness of breath, the onset of the shortness of breath, whether it's gradual or sudden, gagging or choking, prior to, pause, um, pattern, most comfortable position, the number of pillows used to alleviate uh, the extent of exercise that induces, harder to inhale or exhale, the severity, the extent of activity limits, fatigue with breathing, anxiety without getting air, and which anxiety without getting air is a contradiction, contraindication rather, to exercise. Um, next is uh, chest pain. So we want to, once again, learn about the onset and duration, whether it was associated with trauma, uh, coughing or lower respiratory infection, the associated signs and symptoms, shallow breathing, fever, uneven chest expansion, coughing or radiation to the pain of the uh, neck and arms, efforts to treat, heat, splinting, pain medication. Was it successful? Any other medications that aren't directly related to the problem? Um, and next, you know, we want to go over lab tests, radiographs, and surgical interventions. So a chest x-ray. Chest x-ray provides the clinicians with a static assessment of anatomic abnormalities. And you want, obviously want to know the results. Arterial blood gases as well. Is the patient oxygenated? And, the, is, and also the acid-base status of the patient. Uh, the last lab test that we want to consider is uh, uh, pulmonary function tests, which are essential as part of a patient with a respiratory disease. Um, it ranges from simple to very complex. Uh, pulmonary function tests primarily are used by physical therapists as a way to document baseline and the effectiveness slash response to treatment. So once again, moving on to physical exam, uh, we want to start off with our observation and inspection, uh, and which will provide us with the level of consciousness of the patient, their A and O. Um, and due to decrease of oxygen to the brain, going to look at their body type and proportions. Are they obese or catchic? whether they are extremely skinny, like muscle wasting. Um, their posture, abnormal posture may indicate musculoskeletal abnormalities that can either be contributors or the result of pulmonary dysfunction. Anomalies of the spine and ribcage can interfere with normal excursion and result in restrictive breathing patterns, such as scoliosis, kyphosis, and ankylosing spondyl uh, spondyl spondylitis. I'm going to look at their extremities. Uh, inspect for signs of local cyanosis or digital clubbing, whether they're painful, swollen joints, or edematous limbs, and any sort of equipment, use of a cardiac monitor, ventilator, or oxygen administration. We're going to inspect the head, neck, and face, We're going to detect any color changes, cyanosis or pallor or redness. Um... Identify pursed lip breathing or nasal flaring, uh, jugular vein distension and hypertrophy of the SCM. I look at the face for signs of distress. 
going to inspect uh, unmoving chest, static chest, the skin and the incisions, scars or trauma, shape and symmetry, rib angles, um, the intercostal spaces, the musculature around the chest. Is it hypertrophic or atrophic? Going to inspect the movement of the chest, which is you know a dynamic inspection. Determine the respiratory rate. The normal respiratory rate of an adult should be anywhere between 12 to 20 um, breaths per minute. And their ratio of inspiration to respiration, which should be a 1 to 2 ratio. Uh, is their breathing noisy? Uh, the symmetry of ventilation, the muscles of breathing. Are they using primary versus secondary muscles to breathe? Looking at their breathing patterns, um, diaphragmatic versus upper chest breathing. Uh, and descriptors of this is uh, as follows. Eupnea is normal breathing. Dyspnea is shortness of breath. Orthopnea is shortness of breath when supine. And tachypnea is an increase in um, respiratory rate, such as uh, greater than 20 uh, breaths per minute. And bradypnea is a decrease in respiratory rate, which would be less than 12 per minute. Next comes palpation. It's part of our exam. So thoracic, musculature, and skeleton. Pulsation, tenderness, bulging, depressions, any unusual movement, uh, any thoracic excursion. So specific lung segments, utilizing your hands to compare the extent of expansions and timing of movement in the upper, middle, and lower segments the upper segment, such as the upper traps, the middle segments standing anterior to the patient with hands facing posteriorly and fingers placed towards the axillary folds with the thumbs meeting towards the nipple line, and the lower segments where uh, you would stand posterior to the patient with the hands facing anterior and below the axillary fold with thumbs meeting at the spine's processes. Uh, diaphragmatic motion, placing the thumbs at the sternal angle with fingers over the lower margin at the ribs. Inspiration should cause the thumbs to separate. And tactile fremitus, voice sounds created by saying 99 are palpated with palms over the chest wall, and it may increase slash decrease or be absent over uh, diseased lung tissue. So chest wall pain is uh, an important uh, symptom to be aware of where you know, the patient will describe the location, type, and characteristics of this pain. And you want to palpate with firm pressure, then um, you have patient cough and take deep breaths to see if the symptoms can be reproduced or exacerbated. And then that will allow you to help uh, differentiate between four different types of chest wall pain. So cardiogenic chest wall pain is usually located substernal with or without radiation to the upper extremity and is described as a pressure or weight on the chest. Um, next type of chest wall pain is nerve root pain. And if it is, uh, if there's inflammation or irritated um, nerve root, the pain will follow the dermatomal distribution. So roots that involve the chest wall, the back, and the abdomen, such as C4 and T2 to 12. And this can be due to degenerative arthritis, neoplasms, or disc lesions. Um, costal 
cartilage or ribs type of chest wall pain, which could be due to a fracture, subluxation, inflammation, or infection. Symptoms are usually well localized uh, and tender to palpation. Or it could be muscular chest wall pain due to spasms, strain, or uh, delayed onset muscle soreness. And obviously this would be our differential diagnosis where um, you would check the patient's history and do a deep palpation and resisted muscle excursion in attempts to reproduce symptoms. And next for our pulmonary exam, we will do auscultation, which is listening to the lung sounds over the chest wall with a stethoscope. The technique will be as follows. Patient should be seated for the anterior chest wall. Have the patient sit up tall with the scapula retracted for the lateral chest wall. The patient should be sitting with their hands up and posterior chest wall. They would patient would be sitting with their hands on their lap to protract the scapula. So you're going to progress from superior to inferior and side to side. Start with the unaffected side and progress in that manner. Patient should deep, uh, breathe deeper than normal with mouth open. Be sure to not auscultate over breast tissue, clothes, or bone. So let's go over the different lung sounds. Normal breathing sounds have four different types. There's tracheal, which can only be heard over the trachea, which is loud, uh, high-pitched, harsh, and hollow. Bronchial, just heard over the manubrium on either side. It is similar to tracheal, but the expiration is louder and longer with a pause in between inspiration and expiration. Bronchovesicular, which may be heard over the major bronchi. Bronchovesicular is best heard at the sternal border and between the scapula or scapulas, scapulae, whatever the plural for that is. And it is the bronchovesicular is softer and lower pitched. Inspiration and expiration are equal. And last, we have the vesicular sound, which is heard over healthy lung tissue, located everywhere else of the, over the peripheral lung field. It is soft and low-pitched. Inspiration is markedly louder than expiration, and there is no pause in between. Any other sound heard in the peripheral lung field is abnormal. So moving on from normal breath sounds to adventitious breath sounds, uh, which are extra sounds produced by pathological process in the airways, lungs, and pleura. It includes secretions, edema, fibrous inf inflammation, bronchospasms, atelectasis, tumors, and other pathologies. If these sounds are heard, they are always abnormal, and we are superimposed uh, and are superimposed on normal breath sounds. So, for example, uh, rails or crackles, which are discontinuous sounds heard more often in inspiration, caused by a disruption of the passage of air through normal through small airways in the respiratory tree. Ronchi or wheezes, deeper and more rumbling in nature. Ronchi or wheezes are more continuous and heard more often during expiration. Um, next, we're moving on to voice sounds. So, normally the spoken voice vibrates and is transmitted through the lung fields with relative ease. These transmitted sounds are normally muffled and indistinct. So, changes that indicate pathology, for example, bronchophony, saying the word, or number rather, 99, over and over, 
uh, that would be normally muffled and indistinct, but uh, great quality and increased volume of spoken word with pathological process. So um, better that you can hear it, more of a likelihood that there is some underlying pathology. Next is egophony, E-E-E, or E, um, normally muffled, uh, but sounds like E. Uh, however, the intensity of spoken word has uh, increased, and there is a nasally sound. So if there is a pathology, it's likely to go from E to A. So it's documented as a positive E to A sound, A sound, which once again would be hallmark sign of some sort of underlying pathological process or issue. Um, and last is a whispered pectoriloquy saying one, two, three, four. Normally, these numbers would be distorted when um, auscultating. However, uh, this one is usually the first one to be positive, and it is pathological if it sounds like they are whispering in your ear when auscultating uh, or during auscultation. Uh, all of these abnormal findings are associated with consolidation, pleural effusion, and atelectasis. So <clears throat> next we would be doing a cough assessment. We'd be assessing a cough as a symptom and its effectiveness helps determine the most appropriate intervention. A normal cough has three stages. A inspiratory, which would be a deeper breath than normal. Compressive uh, stage, which the glottis closes. And expiratory muscles contract, which uh, will increase intrathoracic pressure. And then there's an expiratory stage where the glottis opens and air is forcefully expelled. So that is the last of the pulmonary exam. So we will now be moving on to gastrointestinal and genitourinary uh, systems for PT exam. So starting off talking about pain, pain is often the primary symptom in patients with an accurate assessment. Um, excuse me, let me say that again. Pain is often the primary symptom in patients, and an accurate assessment is vital to the exam process. So recognizing pain patterns that are characteristic of systemic disease is a necessary step in the screening process. So mechanisms of referred pain are not fully understood, uh, but there are three types of phenomena for us to really consider. The embryonic development. So pain is referred to a site where the organ, is, was, where the organ was located during fetal development. The second phenomena is multi-stage innervation. The viscera is innervated by multiple segments, so pain that is visceral in organ in origins, visceral in origin can be referred to the corresponding somatic areas. And moving on to the third phenomena, which is the most accepted theory, direct pressure and shared pathways. So most viscera is near the diaphragm. Anything that impinges upon the diaphragm can result in referred pain. So there are two different types, right? So central diaphragm impingement refers to the shoulder since we are used to afferent information from the shoulder as opposed to the diaphragm and peripheral diaphragm impairment, which refers to pain to the ipsilateral costal margins uh, and flesh or lumbar region. So think central diaphragm impingement, shoulder. Central, shoulder, central, shoulder, peripheral, lumbar. Central shoulder, peripheral, lumbar. I'm going to say that to myself like a hundred times. 
So now let's compare the difference of pain between systemic versus musculoskeletal pain. So it's unlikely that a patient with back, hip, and SI joint pain, um, which have been present for the past five to 10 years, is demonstrating viscerogenic pain. In such cases, a systemic origin would only be suspected if there is a sudden or recent change in the clinical presentation and slash or the client develops a constitutional symptom. So there are certain aggravating and relieving factors. For systemic pathology, it is usually organ dependent and based on visceral function. For chest, neck, and upper back pain, due to a problem with the esophagus, will most likely be exacerbated with the patient swallowing and eating, whereas neck pain due to a herniated nucleus pulposus or herniated disc would be unchanged. For back, shoulder, pelvic, or sacral pain that is made better or worse with eating, passing gas, or bowel movements is a red flag. For gallbladder, Goal, bladder pain, this can be lessened by leaning forward or assuming a hands-on knees posture. If there is any tense or swollen kidney pain, this may be relieved by flexing the trunk and or tilting towards the involved side. For any pancreatic pain, the patient may sit up and lean forward or lie down with knees drawn to chest to lessen the symptoms. And distended hollow organ pain, um... The body positions or movement that increase intra-abdominal pressure may intensify pain, while positions that reduce pressure or support the structure may ease the pain. So now let's talk about the GI system as a whole. The GI tract tissues can mimic musculoskeletal pain. Pain can be referred to the sternum, the shoulder, the neck, the scapula, the mid-back, the lower back, hips, and pelvis and sacrum. So there are certain signs and symptoms. Absolute signs include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and constipation. Um, pain, uh, most clinically significant symptoms uh, would include abdominal pain, dysphagia, odinophagia, GI bleeding, epigastric pain with radiation to the back, symptoms affected by food, early satiety with weight loss, constipation, di diarrhea, fecal incontinence, arthralgia, referred shoulder pain, psoas abscess, tenderness at McBurney's point, which is one-third of the way between the ASIS and the umbilicus, um, aka the appendix, and neuropathy. So now let's talk a little bit about pain. Visceral pain is usually described as a deep, aching, boring, gnawing, vague, burning, or deep grinding as opposed to a sharp pricking like cutaneous pain. When referred to somatic regions of the low back, hip, and shoulder, the sensation will be vague and poorly localized. Now, if it's the liver, respiratory diaphragm, or pericardium, usually there is referred pain to the shoulder. If it's gallbladder, stomach, pancreas, and small intestine, this refers pain to the mid-back and scapular region. If it is the colon, appendix, pelvic viscera, sigmoid, rectum, ureters, and testes, pain is referred to the pelvis, the sacrum, the flank, and the upper thigh, which, I mean, makes sense if you think about all of these visceral organs and their respective, you know, spots to where they refer pain. 
the upper organs will refer pain to the upper areas, such as the shoulder, middle, mid-back and scapular region, and the lowest ones will refer pain to the pelvis and the lower skeletal areas of our body. We just passed the 60-minute mark, so uh, if you want to take a little five-minute break and pause right here, go ahead. I certainly will do so myself. Welcome back. Hope you had a good break. And if you're just powering through, give you credit. Um, just want to start this off with a little joke before we continue in GIGU. You know, my physical therapist said I should do lunges to stay in shape, but I told him that would be a big step forward. <laughs> Get it? Lunges? Be a big step forward because that's that's what a that's what a lunge is. All right. Anyway, arthralgia. Moving on to arthralgia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a relationship between gut inflammation and joint inflammation. Many inflammatory GI conditions have an arthritic component affecting the joints. Hypothesize that an antigen crossing the gut mucosa and enters the joint, which sets up an immune response. Joint arthralgia is associated with GI infection. Um, it is usually asymmetric, migrating to oligoarticular, um, migrating and oligoarticular, excuse me meaning it affects only one or two joints. It is also called reactive arthritis when triggered by a microbial infection. Accompanying symptoms uh, of arthralgia include fever, malaise, skin rash or lesions, nail bed changes, irrititis, and conjunctivitis. So, um, dialing in on shoulder pain, the left shoulder is uh, free-floating, air flowing, laparoscopic surgery, or blood in the abdominal cavity, the right shoulder, perforated and duodenal ulcers, um, could be contributing to that pain, um, radiating to the right shoulder, leaking gastric juices from posterior wall of the stomach, irritating the diaphragm and referring pain to the right shoulder, pancreatic cancer, uh, the head of the pancreas could refer pain to the right shoulder um, and mid-back and the tail of the pancreas could refer pain to the left shoulder. Now, what about the obturator and psoas? Um, any sort of obturator and psoas abscesses, there is no protective barrier from abdominal structures, so any infectious or inflammatory processes infecting the abdominal pelvic um, cavity can cause an abscess and cause lower abdominal pain. Clinical manifestations include fever, night sweats, pain in the lower abdomen, back and pelvis, and referred to the hip, medial thigh, groin, and knee. may be present with an antalgic gait with the leg and internal rotation causing a functional hip flexion contracture. There are four tests that can be used to assess the possibility of systemic origin of painful hip or thigh. So a heel tap could lift the patient's leg and tap the heel. It is positive if painful expression and reports of right lower quadrant pain. You could do a hop test. If the patient is willing and able, you could have the patient hop on one leg. The test is positive if they will clutch the side, their side and be unable to complete the movement. Um, the iliopsoas muscle test, they can't rule out but can rule in with 95% certainty. Iliopsoas manual muscle test. It is positive if there is an increased abdominal pain or flank pain or pelvic pain. And last would be 
a palpation of the iliopsoas. If there's any sort of tightness, it may result in radiating pain to the lower back. So inflammation and abscesses, painful symptoms in the right or left lower quadrants. So now let's move on to NSAID and GI complications. So NSAIDs and GI complications can have a deleterious effect on the entire GI tract, most commonly affects the gastroduodenal mucosa and can cause erosion to the mucosa or more seriously cause an ulceration with life-threatening bleeding and perforation. It can be asymptomatic until it reaches advanced conditions. And the most common side effects are upset stomach and pain, indigestion, and heartburn. Now, we want to look for an elevated blood pressure and ankle-slash-foot edema. This could be due to a potent renal vasoconstrictor. Uh, risk factors include if a patient is over than over 65 years old, history of peptic ulcer disease or GI disease, smoking and alcohol, oral corticosteroids and anticoagulants, renal complications with hypertension and congestive heart failure, combined with SSRI, such as Selexa or Zoloft or Prozac. So we just completed the gastrointestinal system. We will now move on to the genitourinary system, where uh, whether secondary trauma or insidious onset, a patient with uh, complaints of flank pain, lumbo, uh, lower back pain, or pelvic pain may be renal or urologic in nature. So let's go over the role of the kidneys real quick. The role of the kidneys are to excrete, to um, facilitate acid-base balance, um, electrolyte balance, blood pressure modulation, formation of red blood cells, and the activation of vitamin D and calcium balance. Now, where are the kidneys? The locations of the kidneys are between T11 and L3. Some signs and symptoms of genitourinary diseases may include fever and chills, fatigue and malaise, anorexia and weight loss. Now, if it's musculoskeletal, any unilateral costovertebral tenderness, low back pain, flank, inner thigh or leg pain, ipsilateral shoulder pain. Now, if it's urinary, dysuria, nocturia, along with no known cause of low back pain, feeling that the bladder has not emptied but unable to urinate more, straining to start, hematuria, dribbling at the end of urination, frequency, and more than every two hours. Other could be skin hypersensitivity or infertility. Uh, some gender-specific signs and symptoms. Um, females could have abnormal vaginal bleeding, dysmenorrhea, changes in menstrual pattern, pelvic mass slash lesion, vaginal itching or discharge, pain during intercourse. Now for males, a little bit different, but similar. Difficulty starting or maintaining stream, discharge from the penis, penile lesions, testicular or penile pain, uh, scrotal enlargement, swelling or mass in groin, sexual dysfunction. Now, for physical referral, uh, the proximity of the kidneys, ureters, bladder, and urethra to the ribs, vertebrae, diaphragm, and accompanying muscles slash tendinous insertions often make it difficult to identify a true problem. Urinary tract pain is often similar to pain felt from injury to the back, flank, abdomen, or upper thigh. And um, it's important to ask questions that will elicit 
mixed signals um, or won't elicit mixed signals. Uh, I don't know. Um, there are many urinary tract problems. So you will also include, they also will include elevation in body temperature, abnormal urine color, odor, and amount as well. So that is it for genitourinary. We will now move on to the final topic of this exam, which is diagnostic imaging. So the most important aspect of using diagnostic imaging is effectively making appropriate judgment about when it is needed. So clinical prediction slash rules, uh, tools used to improve the decision-making in clinical practice, commonly used in all of healthcare. In addition to their diagnostic utility, um, clinical prediction rules have been developed to help practitioners match patients with optimal treatment approaches. So guides for knee trauma. Uh, radiographs were used for 85% of patients, but only 6 to 12 were positive for fracture. Uh, Pittsburgh decision rules. It calls for radiographs when the patient has a blunt trauma or fall as a mechanism of injury, plus either both uh, of the following. Either or both of the following. If it is a child less than 12 years old or an adult greater than 50 years old, an inability to walk, for weight-bearing steps in the emergency room. So the sensitivity of this uh, to rule out is 99%, and the specificity to rule in is 60%. So sensitivity, we want a low sensitivity, which, no. Low sensitivity, uh, excuse me, low sensitivity is equal to a high false negative, so we do not want a low sensitivity. And uh, specificity um, a low specificity is a high false positive. So we want a high sensitivity and high specificity for all of these tests. The Ottawa knee rules calls for x-rays if post-acute knee surgery plus one or more of the following. If they are older than 55 years old, tenderness at the head of the fibula or patella, fracture-like pain with palpation, inability to flex the knee to 90 degrees, and inability to walk for weight-bearing steps immediately after or in the ER. The sensitivity is 100%, and the specificity is 27%, which means it is prone to false positives. The Ottawa rules for ankle and foot trauma, separate set of rules for the ankle and midfoot. The ankle trauma, if there is pain in the malleolar zone, and one or more of the following tenderness at the posterior aspect of the tip of the lateral malleolus, tenderness at the posterior aspect of the tip of the medial malleolus, and inability to weight bear immediately after or in the emergency room. Make sure to do a thorough palpation exam of a length of fibula and every bone in the foot. Foot trauma. If there is pain in the midfoot zone and one or more of the following, tenderness at the fifth metatarsal, tenderness at the navicular, an inability to weight bear immediately after and in the ER, a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 40%. These rules can decrease the amount of x-rays by 30 to 40%. And there's a little mnemonic, 44, 55, 66 p.m. So 44, a uh, patient has to weight bear four steps immediately after and weight bear four steps in the ER. 55, pain and tenderness at the fifth metatarsal, Pain and tenderness at the scaphoid, but replacing the scaphoid with a five, like the S with a five, or the navicular. 
and 66 p.m. Pain and tenderness, six centimeters posterior P to the lateral malleolus. Pain and tenderness, six centimeters posterior P to the medial malleolus. Sorry if I ripped your ears off with that one. So there are some low-risk ankle rules. Children with ankle injury has a low-risk exam. Tenderness and swelling isolated to the distal fibula and or adjacent lateral ligaments, distal to tibial anterior joint line. Ankle x-ray may be unnecessary to rule out fracture. Sensitivity of 100%. The Canadian cervical spine rules are as follows. They are used to determine if cervical spine x-rays are necessary for patients who sustain a traumatic injury involving the head and neck. The patient must be alert and oriented and specifically meant to identify a patient at risk for clinically important cervical spine injury defined as any fracture, dislocation, or ligamentous instability demonstrated by DI uh, based on three questions. Are they high risk fact- Are there high risk factors? If yes, x-rays. High risk factors include greater than 65 years old, dangerous mechanism of injury, meaning a fall from over three, five foot, three to five foot steps, um, axial blow, high speed motor vehicle accident, or paresthesia in the limbs. Are there low risk factors? If no, x-rays. If yes, move to number three. Simple rear end motor vehicle accident, normal sitting position, ambulatory, delayed onset neck pain, absence of midline cervical spine pain. Is the patient able to rotate neck actively to at least 45 degrees, right and left? If yes, no x-ray. If no, x-ray. Sensitivity, 100%. Specificity, 43%. Hotel, Trivago. Uh, this reduces x-ray, cervical spine x-rays from 45% to 58%. Pathology in asymptomatic population, spine. MRIs may facilitate the medicalization of low back pain due to its visually exquisite depiction of pathoanatomic patho- adds to fear. Um, most common sites of disc abnormalities are at L4 and L5, L4, L5 and L5S1. My disc in particular is L4, L5. So I can corroborate that. A diagnosis based on MRI in the absence of objective clinical findings that may not be the cause of the patient's pain and, and attempt at operative corrections could be the first step towards disaster. So want to be very, very careful with medical imaging and treating the patient, not the image. First time episode study, an MRI at baseline, MRI if patient development developed low back pain. 90% had findings at baseline. Of the patients who went on to develop clinically serious low back pain, 84% had unchanged or improved imaging findings. Imaging guidelines for symptomatic low back pain. Acute low back pain is an example of a disease that comes with some uncertainty surrounding definitive diagnosis. One can see how this would lead to inappropriate findings which do more harm than good. Approximately 25% of adults in the United States report having low back pain that lasts more than one day in the last three months. Acute low back pain is responsible for 50% of all patients who seek physical therapy. And there are three key recommendations. Clinicians should not routinely obtain imaging for patients with nonspecific low back pain. Clinicians should perform imaging on patients with low back pain when severe or progressive neurologic deficits are present 
or when serious underlying conditions are suspected on the basis of history and physical exam. Clinicians should evaluate patients with persistent low back pain and signs and symptoms of radiculopathy or spinal stenosis with MRI or CT only if they are potential candidates for surgery or epidural steroid injections. Now moving on to low back pain due to cancer. Absence of early imaging is not associated with higher incidence of missed cancer diagnosis. In primary cancer settings, low back pain due to cancer was 0.7%, compression fracture, 4%, spinal infection, less than 0.01%, ankylosing spondylitis, 03 to 0.5%. Red flags for cancer as a cause of low back pain or for a history of cancer, it's 14%. Unexplained weight loss, 2.7%. Failure to improve in one month, 3.4%. Greater than 50 years old, 2.7%. Patient with a history of cancer, probability of low back pain being due to cancer increases from 0.7 to 9%, means that approximately 1 in 10 of these patients would have metastatic cancer. Imaging should be recommended for these patients immediately. Patients with any other risk factors such as unexplained weight loss, no improvements, greater than 50 years old, only increased by 1.2%. The approach of close monitoring would be more appropriate. If little to no improvement is further noted, refer for imaging. So two exceptions to the imaging rules, cauda equina and vertebral infections. Some key clinical features include new onset of urine retention, saddle anesthesia, fecal incontinence, fever. Immediate imaging is also recommended for severe or progressive motor weakness. As physical therapists, in the early management of low back pain episodes, it is incumbent on the PT to explain to the patient that early routine imaging and other tests usually cannot identify a precise cause and do not improve patient outcomes and incur additional expenses. In most cases, acute low back pain, a patient's symptoms will resolve within four weeks with proper conservative care without the need for imaging. Adults greater than 50 years old with no signs or symptoms of systemic disease, symptomatic treatment without imaging is recommended. Adults greater than 50 years old or those whose findings are suggestive of systemic disease, conventional x-rays and simple lab tests can almost completely rule out underlying systemic disease. Advanced imaging should be reserved for those who are considering surgery or those in systemic disease for those in which systemic disease is strongly suggested. When patients are referred to physical therapy for low back pain, there is a decreased risk of injury, injections, physical visits, physician visits. I can't read right now. It's getting late. 2.07 a.m. for the record. Opioid use, advanced imaging, and costs. About $2,700 cheaper. Inappropriate imaging can cause harm in three ways. Misinterpretation of results by clinician unhelpful advice, needless downstream of testing, and invasive procedures. Misinterpretation of results by patient, fear avoidance of movement and activity, low expectations and for results. Side effects such as exposure to radiation. Abnormal findings are increasingly prevalent with age in symptomatic populations and correlate poorly with a person's level of pain and disability. Early use of MRI for low back pain leads to increased disability, 
poor perceived prognosis, and a greater chance of back injury. And with that, we are complete for the third physical therapy exam exam. How remarkable is that? Right? Freaking awesome. And with that, I will leave you with a little bit of motivation. We will overcome. We will get hundreds. We will do well on these exams. I'm manifesting it for us. I'm manifesting it for us, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Yes, screw strong and intelligent. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Wait for the wait for wait for the chorus. Wait for the chorus. It's coming. Oh, absolutely. You're not welcome, exams. I will survive. Yes, we will survive. We are going to do well. We are manifesting. We are studying. We are going to pass. And we are going to be doctors of physical therapy in no time. It is 2 o'clock in the morning and I'm fucking shouting in my basement. The psychosis has certainly set in. (laughs) But once again, great job. Um, And I wish everybody the best in studying and listening to these podcasts. And I hope that they help because they certainly certainly help me. So I'm going to keep doing them. And um, yeah, I saw like on a bunch of them, there was like over 500 views. So if there's like a bunch of different countries listening. So if you're listening, thanks. And if you're not, then you're not going to hear this. So fuck you. Yeah. All right. And that's that's pretty much it. (sighs) Good night. Good luck.